Hello, and welcome to another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Today marks the end of our special January series centered around evidence-based nutrition and sustainable health habits. Today, we have Delina Soto on the show. She has a unique background in nutrition education, and she started out doing community nutrition in the public school setting. So I'm really excited to have her on. You'll pick up some tips and maybe some conceptual shifts to make around your approach to nutrition ed in your district. All right, let's get started. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your food philosophy, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into nutrition and dietetics? What made you interested in the field? Sure. So I started off pre-med at Penn State. I took Nutrition 101 my first semester just because I didn't sign up for a gym credit and I needed to have that one credit course. And my advisor suggested, hey, we should, you know, just incorporate Nutrition 101 in here. And so I said, sure. And I took the class. I loved it so much that after the semester, I completely switched over to (laughs) the nutrition track and I never looked back. How did your family feel about that? Because I can imagine being pre-med versus studying to be a dietitian, maybe not going over well. My dad actually thought it was a great idea. It's funny because he was like, he would always say, are you sure you want to be a doctor? You know, it's just a lot of school. He's like, if you want to start a family, like, how are you going to do that? You know, ah. <laughs> like in his, in his mind, he was just always like cautioning me, like cautioning me, like, you know, this is a really big career. Like you're going to be in school for a very, very long time. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Student loans and all this other stuff. And he was happy when I switched over to nutrition. I mean, it's still like the medical field and he was still super excited about it, but he was actually happier, I think, because, you know, I'm done school already. I wouldn't have been if I was, right. <laughs> if I would have started medical school. That's I really interesting. I, I bet it's nice to have that support though, because I can imagine in a family that doesn't have that emphasis on family, that might not go over so well. But it makes sense. Yeah. You need to factor in what you want out of your life as a whole when you're trying to figure out what to do professionally. You can't just look at one thing in isolation. Well, how did you end up founding Nutritiously Yours? How did you, did you Um, know you wanted to have your own practice when you first entered into dietetics? No, I didn't even know it was an option. I think as most didactic programs, they really just focus on that clinical aspect of nutrition. And I knew clinical wasn't for me from the get-go. I never enjoyed it, but I knew community nutrition was where my passion was. So I... Once I graduated and became an RD, I only applied for community nutrition or, you know, non-traditional dietitian jobs. I've had my practice for um, almost three years now, and 
it was until my daughter was a little older and I had switched jobs that I started thinking, can I do this? Can I take a leap of faith? I wanted to be out in the field in the community, um, working for one-on-one, having that time to be able to talk to them and connect to them. And I knew clinical wasn't that. So I ended up having a few jobs until um, I realized that I kind of wanted to start a private practice because I live in Philadelphia and there's such a huge Hispanic community. And I realized no one was tapping into that. No one was out speaking to the community in their own language. So I wanted to start a private practice where I could do that and reach people in the community. So I kind of took a leap of faith and I haven't looked back since. Oh, that's awesome. That's kind of surprising if the population is so high, I would have thought that there would have been other people already in that niche that you could collaborate with. Were there any... It's insane. You're really the only one or have people Um, followed suit? I can't say that I'm the only one. I I have a few. Well, not a few. I have two dietitian friends that speak Spanish, but they're in the hospital setting, in the clinical setting, more than anything. Um... In Philly, I know three other dietitians that speak Spanish. I know in New York, it's a lot different. And does everybody <laughs> speak Spanish as a first language or a second language? The women I know all speak Spanish as a first language. Okay. Both of them have actually come from other countries as dietitians and then have become dietitians gotcha. here. Yeah. That's probably like next level <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> like I speak Spanish, but... As a second language, my grandmother speaks Spanish as a first language, but that does help me out when I'm trying to remember the <laughs> words for like um, liver or something, which I, at the moment, yeah. I know that, but if I needed to know it, I wouldn't remember. So yeah. that that's interesting too. So I knew I wanted to be in public health or some aspect of community health because I wanted to work in disease prevention not management or just putting a Band-Aid on it. In clinical, a lot of times it feels like you're just trying to make sure nutrition doesn't get in the way of their stay, that it doesn't exacerbate their condition, but you're not trying really to heal anyone while they're in the hospital. You're just trying to keep them in one piece so they can get their treatment and go home. And then from there, someone is meant to have contact with them and to help them actually make changes. So was that part of your interest too? You wanted to help with prevention? Yeah, I knew that exactly what you said. Clinical was very much you have, you know, top 15 minutes with someone. They're in the hospital. They're not really willing to talk to you or just ready to make a change yet. I'm a very personable person. I like to talk a lot. (laughs) I like to get to know people. And the clinical setting was just very much like, here you go. This is the information you need, which is great, but you might not be reaching them at exactly the right time. And I wanted to be on the other side. I wanted to be on the side where they were ready, hopefully to make that change and have the time to sit down, talk, and really get to the root of the problem and not put a Band-Aid over, like you said. Right, right. So I usually focus on things that are related to daily operations and not always so much on wellness, but I wanted to have you on since you are an evidence-based practitioner and you deal with people trying to improve their health outcomes. I wanted you to kind of speak to your 
food philosophy and how as an organization we can help our employees walk the walk as far as improving health outcomes wellness but not trying to burden them with anything uh, not evidence-based like a fad diet or something or pushing them towards quick outcomes rather than habit change that could really help them in the long run. And another thing too that I know you specialize in is culturally appropriate counseling because the workforce is very diverse and culture affects your relationship with food and weight. So can you speak to what your food philosophy is and how that informs what you do? Yeah, um, I think growing up, in in a family who had a different culture really molded the way that I feel about food and just my philosophy when it comes to nutrition. My parents are from the Dominican Republic, so I grew up eating home-cooked meals every day. My mom didn't work. She was a stay-at-home mom, so she cooked every meal. And so I grew up with that, you know, that family eating together at the table um, having our meals together, having a very diverse amount of food. We ate rice and beans every day, but we always had something else. I grew up going to family parties that also had a very wide variety of food, sometimes that, you know, Americans might not be familiar with, but it was very much ingrained in the person that, that I was growing up. And culture played a huge role in that. And so... For me, as a dietitian, I know how it feels, you know, to love those foods and then to see sometimes how diet culture kind of tells you that you can't eat those foods. But I mean, everyone in my family is super healthy. <laughs> we don't have any diabetes. We don't have any heart disease. No one's ever had problems with cholesterol, really. We don't have any cancers, you know at least in my family tree, in my family, we don't have anything that you can say, yeah, it's pinpointed. Rice gets such a bad rep. And I hate to, to just say white rice, but, you know, there's a lot of other foods that have been vilified right. um, due to diet culture. And so many people are afraid. They're afraid to, you know, look at bread and they're like, oh, I can't have it. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what bread? You know, it's you just have to educate. And so, so for me, that really molded who I was, especially going to a school where, you know, in the nutrition department, I really was the only person of color. There, there was no one else in my class who was of a different background. And so I, a lot of the times it was very defensive when a lot of the information was being put out there because some of the girls had never been to a city you know, they grew up in the suburbs or they grew up on a farm. So their view of food was a lot different than me growing up in Philadelphia where there's fast food everywhere. Um, there's food deserts. There's people that don't have access to food the way that other people do. And so for me, it was always that constant, you know, trying to educate them that there was like another world out there. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do when I became a dietitian, which is why I was so passionate about community nutrition. And so I think that for me, my philosophy is all foods really true fit in your diet. You, you really need to have a good relationship with that food before health becomes a priority. And, you, and there has to be like a holistic approach when it comes to nutrition and health. It can't just be food. 
you know, there's there's so many other things that play a role in why we pick what we pick to put our body. That is so true. What do you feel the dietitian's role is in that? Because I know sometimes people <laughs> are so aware of scope of practice that maybe they're afraid to talk about any of the other areas of life that affect your ability to thrive if it isn't food related. Um. I think that we have to see people as humans and we understand that everybody's situation is different and we have to meet them where they are. You can't make an impact in someone's life if you're trying to drastically change something about their life. If someone comes to you and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Philly, right? We, we don't have, there's a lot of areas that don't have supermarkets, a lot of areas where you have to catch three, three bosses to go to a supermarket and then come back home with, you know, bags of groceries on the bus. That That's really hard. Right. You know, even for a single person, imagine now if you have kids. So having someone come into your office, you know, probably you know, if someone already has diabetes or is pre-diabetic and you have to educate them, but then you find out, okay, they don't have access to food. We shouldn't shame them if they go into McDonald's. We shouldn't shame them if they're drinking soda. You don't know the quality of the water in their home. You don't know, you know, what their income is half the time. As dietitians, we're not really looking into those kinds of things. So as a dietitian, you need to help them wherever they are. So if they're going to feed a family of four and McDonald's is across the street and they have a dollar menu, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to make one healthy choice while we're there? Because anything that you do that's healthy is overall going to change your life. Even if it's not drinking soda, if it's just taking the water that one time. So I really like that idea of giving people something that's approachable and makes sense in the context of their individual life. So I can see if you are doing one-on-one counseling, of course, you're going to get that information about their life and what they have access to. What would you recommend people do when we're trying to do large nutrition education events for parents and we don't know what the situation is for the average person in the audience. How do you approach that? I think you have to make it very, very general and go back to the basics. I think sometimes we forget that some people really don't know the basics. (laughs) So I think the, the more general you can do, you can be, um, the easier it is. I mean, no matter where you are, everyone's drinking soda. Yeah. Um, and or true. drinking high sugary drinks. So, so how can we educate about that? I think that's a simple way to start because everybody's consuming those things. We don't. We don't have to worry about the like nitty gritty like nutrient content of everything. Just the basics. You know, it's important to eat more fruits and vegetables. It doesn't matter where you are or where you live. Most Americans aren't eating fruits and vegetables. Why? Like, why is that an issue? Those questions to the audience, I think it's easier to be able to answer it, even if you're just sticking to those those basics. Like, why aren't you drinking enough water? Right. Why aren't you picking more fruits and vegetables? What is going on? Because I think that is more of a general issue in the whole country than nitty-gritty things. That's a really good idea. So even if you're not doing one-on-one counseling, you can still get feedback directly from your audience about what their obstacles are, and then you can focus on those ways to work with those obstacles. 
Yeah. That's a good point. So how would you define diet culture? Not everybody has heard that term before. How would you explain (laughs) what it is? I think diet culture is basically what's emphasized in magazines or in the media more than anything. I think looking back at what you see on the news or when you hear like the headlines or when you're looking at a magazine, most of the information that's coming at you is somehow related to diet culture. Whether it is like a you know, on a magazine where it says lose 10 pounds in five days, you know, right? <laughs> or um, you hear on the news where, you know, they say, I, re- I heard something the other day that was like, if you take a bath for an hour, it's save us going to the gym for an hour. Like, come on now, you should have more common sense than that. But <laughs> some people don't and it's very sensationalized. And I think that a lot of what you're seeing in the media, more likely than not, is just meant to capture your attention super quick. You're not getting all the details as to why they're saying it or where it came from. They're taking, you know, one sentence from a study and and blowing it up. So it's like doing your research, which again, might not always... <laughs> now I'm laughing after I said that, that <laughs> sentence because people do their research, but not looking at the correct Right. Well, and sometimes I even get turned around when I'm outside of my scope of practice. Like I Mm -hmm. got some lab work done and based on what I read on the internet and the doctor prescribed, things weren't adding up. But I knew enough to know that chances are the doctor knows something I don't know that I didn't get off of WebMD. And so I just called and asked for more information. But that's from a person who has a fairly high level of health literacy because there's literacy in general and then there's health literacy. So Mm -hmm. the general population, they're reading on like an eighth grade level. A lot of people Mm -hmm. are or less. That's an average. But then when it comes to understanding health specific things to a lot of Mm -hmm. people, it sounds like you're speaking a language they don't understand. So Mm -hmm. I wonder what can consumers do really? Let's say you're an accounting major and give you a number, you've got it. Maybe if we gave you some statistics, you'd know what we were talking about. But just talking about anatomy and physiology, we're losing you. So what what does the general public do? I I mean... I have no idea what the general public should do. I feel like that's something we as dietitians need to figure out because, again, there's so much misinformation out there, especially because, you know, RDs, you know, we want to be the nutrition professionals. We want to be the go-to people. But then there's so many other people that call themselves, you know, a variation of nutritionist or health coach or, you know, other things that people might understand better than the word registered dietitian. I mean, when you're a nutritionist, why wouldn't you think that they're the expert? I mean, what does registered have to do? Registered dietitian have to do with anything? Yeah. I <laughs> um, and like I think it's very confusing. added nutritionist to the title. I'm like, oh, really? We're just, yeah. we're just caving yeah. now. But at the same time, I understand that is the recognized term. Mm-hmm. It just says to me that some people have done a way better job of marketing mm-hmm. than others, you know? And I think that's a problem in public health or community health in general is we are not nearly as effective with our marketing as mm-hmm. all of these food manufacturers that 
sell sweet beverages, for example. Mm-hmm. They do mm-hmm. such a better job <laughs> than we yeah. do getting in front of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's why community nutrition should be more at the forefront. And, and you know, more dietitians should be working at these big companies so that, you know, trying to make a difference from the inside out. I think that a lot of people get upset thinking, oh, why is there a dietitian working at Coca-Cola? Well, if there's no dietitian there, then how are, <laughs> how are we going to change it? <laughs> Someone has to be in there, you know, trying to maneuver within the company. But yeah, I think it, it's really hard for people to understand what is a good source when it comes to nutrition. Right. And as individuals, being able to touch as many people as I can, I think that's maybe the only way we're going to be able to make a difference. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. And I do see, even though I know some people who are really, really health oriented, sometimes they have bones to pick what the USDA recommends. But compared Mm -hmm. to the standard American diet, those, if we could just get everybody to follow those, I mean, we'd see Mm -hmm. tremendous changes in health outcomes. If you really read the recommendations, you know, there mm-hmm. is an emphasis on water and fruit Fruits and, and vegetables. vegetables being at the center <laughs> yeah. of the plate, but no yeah. hard food rules. And they talk about a healthy eating pattern over mm-hmm. restrictive eating. And yeah. so that, I think that's a really good place to start. And somehow, I don't know how all these other companies manage to be more ever present than even the government. Cause I know there are a ton of people who have never well, looked at my plate. Well, yeah, that's true. Money and lobbyists. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know what? You just saw, you solved the mystery. It wasn't really a mystery. It's it's really, but it's really wonderful. We don't have the, the academy doesn't have the money to do it. I that's mean, true. we're literally, we're at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to the medical world. We don't have <laughs> That is true. Also true. (laughs) Well, I guess, too, that that's something that consumers should think about. When you're looking at a source, consider what interests that source may really have. Are they Mm -hmm. interested in their own bottom line that possibly uh, is not influenced positively or negatively by your health outcomes? And think seriously about whether or not that's Mm -hmm. a source you want to take seriously. Just be more of a critical thinker, which I know is not a Mm. strong suit for all people, but it's something we should try and strengthen. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think it's just like a loaded question. (laughs) There's so many different things that could be done yeah, I mean, I love that, that article from Jessica Knoll that just like blew up a few weeks ago about she's talking about how the smartest women fall for the wellness industry, mm, and it, it's crazy. That. Did you read it? No, I'll have to look that up. Oh, and you put should it read it. Show notes. Just yeah, it's called me. Smash Smash the Wellness Industry. Yeah, wow. it was published in the New York Times, but it talks about that. It talks about how the smartest people, the smartest people, still fall for the pseudoscience because not everyone has a scientific brain. And just like you said, some of the people that you know have issues and gripe with just the simple my plate. Like what could possibly be wrong with my plate? Well, maybe some people don't like dairy. Maybe some people don't like meat. But again, that is very individualized. As a general population, you still need protein. 
as the general population, we still get most of our calcium and vitamin D from dairy. So we can't take these food groups out when most of the United States eats it and still lacks in it. So, you know, you as an individual, if you don't want to eat those foods, that's quite all right. But you don't have to push your agenda on someone else because we have to look at food as a whole. We have to look at all food groups and how each of them could help. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I understand, not that I've ever had to do it before, but conceptually, the challenge of creating a visual that will be easily and quickly understood (laughs) and also providing more detail in the larger document, but no wanting to read it. Because it's like, yeah, it says dairy, but if you really There's read other the guidelines, it makes plenty of room for other beverages. And then protein, they include beans, they include mm-hmm. plant protein. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, what can you do? It's really hard to create something that can be understood by all people. So that's something I worry about, too, when it comes to nutrition education. That's a component that mm-hmm. school districts engage in. And that's one of our responsibilities is trying to teach accurate science-based lessons about food to our children and to our communities. And and sometimes you can think you put something out there that was so crystal clear and <laughs> everybody understands it differently. And sometimes people misunderstand it to their detriment. So yeah. what do you do when it comes to trying to communicate what maybe is a more nutrient rich food and what technically has no value, but we're not saying if you have it, you're going to drop dead on the spot. So like sugary beverages, obviously they have nothing to really offer us from a nutritional mm-hmm. perspective. How do you explain to people not telling them to restrict or get on a diet? You're just trying to explain this does this for your body. This does that for your body. Let's find a balance. How do you communicate those lessons? I try to think about it as if I'm speaking to a child. And I know that sounds weird. <laughs> But if you could break it down to a way where a child can go, oh, I get it, then an adult will too. And I think that, you know, that's something that we lack as dietitians. We speak with these big words and we want to educate people so much that we sometimes forget the lack of knowledge that people have when it comes to food and nutrition. And so I think for me, it might come a little easier because I did work as a nutrition educator at the school district here. So I had a lot of curriculum that I still remember some of the wording and I still try to put those kinds of analogies into my presentations. But I think it's really getting down to like, how would you say it to your child or a child in your family? Right. For them to understand it. Because if it's not simple enough to capture their attention and for them to understand, it's not going to make a difference. Hmm. Philly is one of the poorest major cities in the U.S., and we have one of the biggest food deserts. And so teaching in these super low-income schools, a lot of people hadn't seen a lot of the foods that we were bringing in. We had a connection with a farm. We would bring in foods and we would educate about them. Some of the schools actually had farms on site, and so we would educate through like what they were growing. 
And so I one time did have this mom come up to me and was like super upset because her child was eating a purple potato and she'd never seen a purple potato before. And she thought we were giving them like, like in her mind, like a chemical, like something that wasn't real. And she saw, you know, we were, we were just like being a joke. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, no, you know, there's so many different varieties of potatoes. They come in a lot of different colors and there's just happened to be a purple potato that came from a local farm and we want to expose the kids. And she was super upset um, because she thought we were, you know, giving them fake food basically. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Well, after you spoke with her, did she seem to be relieved or did she believe you? I could see if you were that no, convinced. No, she didn't. She's going to believe you. Wow. No. That's that's really interesting. I never thought about the possibility of that even happening. I, I mean, and, you don't see them in the supermarket, really. Well, that is true. I will say this was really embarrassing at the time that it happened, but I, I don't have any shame about it anymore. I remember when I started seeing like those hot pink radishes everywhere in restaurants. Yeah. And I felt so dumb. I could not identify it. And when I found out it was just a radish, I was like, oh, my, why don't I know what a radish looks like? But I'll tell you, I was at dinner one day with other people who work in nutrition. And I was like, oh, what is this? It's so pretty. But I'm not a picky eater. So I Mm -hmm. can identify it. But I'm like, it's on my plate. I'm sure it's edible. I can eat it. And the waiter didn't know what it was. And then... Like the next month, it was on the front of Food and Nutrition magazine. I was like, oh, <laughs> duh, I don't know why I didn't see that. <laughs> so there are a lot of things yep. you don't see at the grocery store very often. A lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah. So, uh, so we've talked about how culture definitely affects how we interact with food. But have you seen how culture influences our perceptions of health and whether or not we link that to weight or we don't link it to weight? I think every every culture has weight stigma. You, right. you can't really get away from that, especially in the world that we live in now. And I think that information just travels so fast now that everybody, you know, somehow assumes carbs are bad or, you know, we shouldn't eat anything white or things like that. I think it's more of like a generalized thing now because information is just being widespread all over the place and sometimes maybe not the the best information. So I think that for some cultures, yeah, I mean, for me, for being Dominican, being curvier was never an issue. Now, of course, people that were like, what my family believed to be bigger than curvier, then yeah, then they would be like, oh, she probably has a weight problem. You know what I mean? I think that for other cultures, you know, maybe like being what we would consider a BMI of being overweight is normal because that's just the way our culture is genetically. But then once you, you go past that, then you start seeing people as considered overweight or obese in their eyes. They might not have those words specifically for it, but there there are other words for it. So I think that, I think all cultures struggle with it, but I think that in general, people of color feel healthier when they're on the other end than than this. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. You're right, but then it's like the ridicule, the the weight mm-hmm. stigma is still there, but it probably mm-hmm. starts at a higher, a little, yeah, a higher weight. It's funny. Yeah. As a teenager, I got 
constant flack for being too thin. And in hindsight, (laughs) I'm sure that the thinness was related to an undiagnosed thyroid problem. And later on in life, it was the the reason behind kind of uncontrolled weight gain. But it's funny, Mm -hmm. when I was too thin for all the people of color around me, I was looking like super healthy to the rest of the community around me. Uh, And it was interesting to be told, oh, you look great. You look healthy Mm -hmm. when my weight was linked to my health problem. Mm -hmm. But then to be told, you look horrible. You look unhealthy when, again, my weight was linked to Mm -hmm. my health problem, but it was the wrong weight. (laughs) So a little (laughs) little arbitrary. And I could see how that could irk people who are trying to take care of their health Mm -hmm. and being ridiculed for being in a larger body. Like there was Mm -hmm. an article in, well, I guess it was a news story and then it was an article on the site that NPR covered recently about the damage that weight stigma has on health status. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about, you mentioned there's many factors that affect health. In Mm -hmm. your experience, what do health practitioners need to be aware of when it comes to how you could harm someone by reinforcing weight stigma when you're attempting to help them be healthier? I think that, you know, medical professionals in general look at BMI as kind of the gold standard, right? Like if your BMI is over 25, you're overweight. That's it. They're not looking at the person. And I think that's where a lot of medical practitioners go wrong because they're just so like numbers driven Mm -hmm. in a way um, that times I think they forget to look at the person as an individual and seeing that person as a whole and saying, okay, you might be, you know, a little on the, according to your BMI on the obese end, but everything else is looking amazing and you're not borderline anything. There's so many other aspects Um, that, that are more harmful to your health than the actual number on your, on the scale. So like, how do we start teaching people all of these genetic variations that are involved in weight? It's not just calories in calories out. If it was that simple, we wouldn't have a job. (laughs) And then you can see to me, one thing that isn't focused on enough that kind of eliminates all the other areas where there are questions and areas where people can still debate is that there's no proven successful intervention for mm-hmm. weight reduction. There isn't. there isn't one. And that tells you right there that if there's nothing available at this moment that's proven to be helpful, and yet attempting to control your weight has been proven to cause harm to a mm-hmm. lot of people, that it isn't something that we should be focusing on or Mm-mm. endorsing. What we can mm-hmm. focus on, like you said, is high vegetable and fruit consumption is proven to be beneficial to your health. And it may or may not change your weight but that isn't the point that isn't how we measure health you know Mm -hmm. it would be water consumption there you go 
<laughs> so do you battle the sugary beverages a lot? I think, so yeah, Philadelphia has the soda packs now. And there's people for it. There's people not for it. A lot of people feel like it targets lower income communities. And so they're putting a tax on people that have, you know, lower social economic status. And then there's people that believe that the tax helps people reduce their sugar consumption, which is why, you know, it began anyway. But I'm kind of in the middle. I see both sides. For me, again, our city is just so big and there's so we're surrounded by so many other areas that unless it's a statewide thing, I don't think it's really going to make a difference because you can like cross the street and be outside of Philadelphia and the taxes there anymore. So you're now giving, so you're, you're going across the street to another County or another city. You're now putting your money into that County and that, particular township because you don't want to get taxed. So you're getting the sugary beverage regardless, but then the, you know, mom and pop stores that are in the city are now hurting because people aren't going to buy there. Even if they, even if they weren't going just for sugary drinks, if they're going to go somewhere else, they're going to get everything they need at that one particular place. So it's hurting the economy. So it's like both. I, I see both ways. And I think it's just important to just educate people on the importance of water and why you need it. I mean, so many people are walking around with headaches and they have no idea it's because I'll be hydrated. It makes a <laughs> tremendous difference. I don't know how, well, honestly, I didn't realize for a long time that by the time you're thirsty, mm-hmm. you, you've dropped the ball. That design that you've dropped the ball, that isn't when you're supposed to start hydrating. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. We assume that things are common knowledge, and there's technically no such thing as common no. knowledge. So. Nope. Right. <laughs> well, when you were a nutrition educator, how did you end up in that position, and was it in alignment with what you wanted to do in community health? They needed someone bilingual, <laughs> so I fell into that role because I speak Spanish, and so they needed a bilingual um, educator. And it was before I became an RD. So I was getting my master's and working there at the same time. And yeah, there's tons of nutrition educators that are bilingual because you don't need to have a a nutrition degree per se. You could have any kind of like public health degree to to be a nutrition educator. So we had, you know, a lot of bilingual educators. But once, once I became an RD, I just couldn't stay in the position anymore. So, so I had to move along, but there's still tons of people doing the the hard work (laughs) that aren't technically, you know, dietitians, but they do have that public health and they're teaching the basics. They're teaching, you know, teaching my plate. They're teaching, (laughs) they're teaching the common sense stuff. Yeah. That's important because like you said, there's honestly, there's so many people who are not eating that way. That is a, That is the place to start, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, and you don't have to be a specialist to teach that. That is good information for the general Mm -hmm. population. And that's what it's designed for. It's understood that it it may not be appropriate for certain health conditions, Mm -hmm. but it is for the general population. And it's based on science. So, 
It is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate that there are people out there who have a passion for community health that are making impact in all parts of the country. I think it's going to take everybody and different specialties working together to see major changes in health outcomes in this country. So it's nice to know that even in private practice, that's the mission for a lot of people. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad you found me. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this series and I look forward to getting feedback from everyone. I've already heard that some people have picked up some positive takeaways and decided to take a closer look at their own relationship with food and how it may be affecting the way they speak about food to children. Next week, we're shifting gears and we're jumping back into best practices and tips. We have a special guest coming on the show to talk to us about procurement. We know we're entering that time of year when we ought to be thinking about what is going to be on the menu next year, how do we want to use our commodity dollars, all of that good stuff. How to best use your commodity dollars or how commodities even work can be a little confusing. So I thought it would be great to have someone on who specializes in helping districts best use their funds to really break down to us where this money is, what it's intended to do, and how we can leverage it to keep our budgets looking the way we would like them to in the coming year. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others anytime you hear something of use. So hopefully that'll be every episode. All right, everybody. See you next time.